Welcome to this Upila audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 3, Chapter 6 The Dead Man's Story Turn him over, Tom, I said softly, and the sailor clambered into the canoe and obeyed, rather gingerly, though, for no one likes to touch a dead man. The bearded face and staring eyes that confronted us were those of one of our own race, a white man who had been shot through the heart with an arrow that still projected from the wound. His clothing was threadbare and hung almost in rags, while his feet were protected by rude sandals of bark laced with thongs of some vegetable fiber. He was neither Mexican nor Spaniard, but I judged him to be a North American of German descent based on his physiognomy, if that could be trusted. The man had not been long dead. That was quite evident, and the arrow that had pierced his heart must have killed him instantly. I pulled out the weapon and found it of skilled construction, a head of hammered bronze fashioned to a shaft most delicately shaped and of a wood that resembled yew. It differed materially from any Indian arrow that I had ever seen before. The mystery of this man's life and death seemed impenetrable, and I ordered the canoe attached to our stern and towed it in our wake down to the ship. A sailor's burial ground is the sea, so I decided to sew the corpse up in sacking, weigh it down heavily, and sink it in the deepest water of the river. Before doing this, one of the men searched the pockets of the tattered clothing and drew out a small book that looked like a diary, a pocket knife, several bits of lead pencil, and a roll of thin bark tied with wisps of the same material. These things I took charge of and then watched the obsequies. These were quickly performed. Ned reading a short prayer from his Bible by way of ceremony while all our company stood with bared heads. Then the men rowed the body out to the deepest part of the river, and as I watched them from the deck, I noticed they were thrown into a state of sudden excitement and heard cries of alarm and anger. Lifting my spyglass into position, I discovered the cause of this. The boat was surrounded by sharks, their dark heads and white bellies alternating as they swam slowly round and round, attracted by the scent of prey. I yelled to the men to bring the body back, but they were too excited to hear me, and the next instant had dumped the weighted sack overboard and began to row back to the wreck at racing speed. It was just as well, however. I am quite sure that the poor fellow reached the bottom before a shark could seize him, and once in the bottom they would be unable to either see him or grasp him in their jaws. Seated on the deck with the others and shaded from the sun by a heavy awning, I glanced at the diary and found that the murdered man had not made a daily record, but had written upon the pages a sort of narrative, which seemed likely to prove interesting. So I asked Duncan Moyt to read it aloud, which he did. I have it beside me now, and copy the following word for word, as it was first read to us that day in the tropics, with the wilderness all around us. My name is Maurice Klepish, it began, by profession an engineer and mining expert residing at Denver, Colorado, at those times when I am home. 
Nine years ago, I set to the Republic of Columbia to examine a mine. While there, I joined myself to a party that was formed to visit the San Blaze country at the south of Panama and trade with the Indians who are the masters of a vast territory there. I am no trader, but my object was to take advantage of this opportunity and invest the mining possibilities of the wild and unknown regions of San Blaise. Thinking that I should fall in with traces of gold, my fortune would be made. But when we arrived at the border, the arrogant Indians would not allow us to enter the country at all, commanding us with imperious scorn to stand at a respectful distance and display our wares. The traders obeyed without demur, but I was angry and vengeful. For a time, I considered my journey a failure. Indians, however, exchanged their coconuts and sheepskins, with such other things as their land produced, with great willingness and absolute honesty and fairness, and the traders learned that their given word was held inviolate. Nursing my disappointment at being excluded from this mysterious country, I stood suddenly watching the bartering when my attention was aroused by an object that made my heart bound with excitement. It was an immense rough diamond, set into the bronze shaft of a spear borne by Nalignat, the king of the San Blaze, and the most stalwart, dignified, and intelligent Indian I have ever seen. I will explain here that the strange race known as the San Blaze Indians of southern Panama is none other than the historic remnant of the Aztec nation which, when Mexico was conquered by the Spaniards, fled through morass and mountains across plains and rivers until they came to this then-unknown wilderness. Here they located and established a new nation, which they called Tecla. Their territory stretches south of the natural depression of the Isthmus from the Atlantic to the Pacific and contains vast stretches of forest and coastal plains which they have ever jealously guarded from intrusion. No more do they build beautiful cities and golden temples. For gold they had learned to abhor, because lust for it had brought the white demons upon them in Mexico. The white-skinned races were cordially detested as the destroyers of their former nation. By them the Teclas had been driven from the abode bequeathed them by their ancestors. The creed of the new nation, therefore, contained two prime articles of faith, never to mine or trade or employ gold in any form or use for any ornament, and to hate and oppose every white man that came near them. And I really couldn't blame them. The San Blaze people are not truly Indians, as we regard the West Indians and the Central American tribes, but are well-formed and intelligent and fierce, their skin of copper-colored hue. They have a characteristic dress that is peculiar to their nation. They have an established government centering in the king, humane and just laws for the guidance of their tribes, and many racial characteristics. It is said weaker Aztecs remained in Mexico as slaves of the Spaniards, while the nobles and most stalwart and powerful individuals Realizing their inability to oppose the usurpers, but scorning to become their vassals, fled southward in the manner I have described. However true this may be, I found the San Blaise, a name given them by the early Spaniards, but never acknowledged by themselves, 
to be well worthy of admiration in all ways except their persistent hatred of whites. They gave our party coconuts and cereals, tortoise shells, skins of wild beasts that were most skillfully dressed, and a soft quality of lamb's wool in exchange for knives, glass beads, compasses, colored crayons, mirrors, and other inexpensive trinkets. When I got my eye upon the king's mammoth diamond, I was so amazed that I trembled with eagerness. The gem must have weighed fully five hundred carats. On being intent to obtain it for myself, I offered my silver watch, a fountain pen, my comb, and brushes, and a quantity of buttons in exchange for the diamond. My very anxiety was the cause of my undoing. My reckless offers aroused the king's suspicion. When my comrades also saw the diamond, they became anxious as I was, and offered so much for a bit of stone, which the king had never considered of any value. They questioned us closely, and learned that the white men esteemed these gems even more than they do gold. Then the king drew himself up proudly and spoke to his men in their own native dialect, which we were unfamiliar with. Several of the Indians brought to their rulers specimens of the same stones, rough diamonds, ranging from the size of a pea upward. These had been doubtless gathered and kept because they were pretty, but Malignad took them all in his hand, and having pried his own splendid stone from its setting in the spear shaft, advanced to the edge of the river and cast them into its depths. I have told my men, he said, never to gather these pebbles again, nor will we ever trade them to the white men. I class them with the gold, for we are determined not to do anything which will arouse the mad desires of your people. A few of the San Blaise, including their king, speak the English language. More of them speak in Spanish, but their own language, as I have said, is distinct from the dialects of other Indian tribes and white men have had no opportunity to ever learn it. We were greatly disappointed by the loss of our gems, and when we returned to our camp, we talked the matter over and concluded that there must be many diamonds lying exposed upon the surface of the ground and in some parts of the San Blaise territory. Otherwise, the Indians would not have been able to pick up such choice and extraordinarily large specimens as we had seen. I didn't like to go away without making an attempt to locate these diamond fields, and seven of my party, adventurous as myself, determined to join in braving the anger of the stern Nalignat. So at night we stole through the north forest, and by morning had come to the edge of the fertile plains whereon the San Blaze mostly dwell. Their country may be divided into three sections. First, the north forest, bordering on the Panama marshes and the wilderness. Second, a high and broad sweep of coastal plains formed by eroded drift from the mountains. This section is well watered by numerous streams and the soil extremely rich and fertile. To the east, by the Atlantic coast, are the coconut groves, but most of this fruit is grown upon several islands lying off the coast in the Atlantic. The third division lies south of the plains and consists of a magnificent primeval forest that covers thickly all the slope of the mountains. The climate, especially that of the uplands, is temperate and delightful, 
and it has been stated that these powerful Indians control the most desirable bit of land in the Western Hemisphere. It is in the plain that we determine to search for the diamond fields, and as the Indians had arbitrarily forbidden white men to enter their domain, we stained our faces and arms and chests with walnut juice and dressed ourselves in imitation of the San Blaise people as nearly as we were able. And thus, as spies, we prowled about for several days until in a rich valley covered with alluvial deposit, I picked up one of the coveted pebbles. And to our great delight, we knew we had stumbled upon the right place. An hour later, we were surrounded by a band of the San Blaise and made prisoners. We relied upon our disguises to protect us, but when they examined us closely, the Indians stripped off our clothing and discovered our white skin beneath. We knew then our fate was sealed. These people allowed blacks to enter their country and have even employed some of them to labor upon their farms. Other Indian tribes in the mountains who are all hostile to the whites, are permitted to pass through the San Blaise territory, and sometimes these mountaineers have with them white slaves, who are treated cruelly and obliged to bear their burdens. But these whites, who are the slaves of Indians, are the only ones ever tolerated in the country, and a band like ours, entering by stealth to secure treasure, might expect no mercy at the hands of the San Blaise. Being taken before Nalignat at his own village, he condemned us all to death, but one who was to be sent back to Columbia to tell the fate of those who dared defy the laws of the San Blaise. We cast lots, and I won. My comrades, two of them, were young men of position and wealth in Bogota. They were ruthlessly murdered, and I was then escorted to the border and set free. I reported the matter to the Colombian authorities, and a company of soldiers was promptly sent by the president to punish the impudent Indians and teach them not to molest whites in the future. After a long period of waiting, a single soldier who had his ears cut off and was otherwise horribly mutilated arrived at Bogota to tell of the total extinction of all his fellows and to report that King Nalignat had promised to treat in the same manner anybody who dared to interfere with his authority. The government decided to let these fierce Indians alone. There are other troubles near home that needed their attention. I returned to Denver but could not get this rich diamond field out of my mind. I was a poor man, yet I knew where I might obtain countless treasure if I dared but make the attempt. Finally, I decided to accomplish alone what a band of men could never succeed in doing, and having formulated my plans, I sailed to Cologne and prepared to enter once more the country of the San Blaise. My idea was admirably simple. The Indians feel so secure that they seldom prowl by night, and in their climate the stars and the moon are so brilliant that they illuminate the country almost as well as does the sun by day. By stealthily avoiding all habitations and villages, I had a fair chance to escape observation, and the valley I sought was in an uninhabited part of the plains. I took a canoe and a package of provisions and began my journey by entering the San Maladrino River 
at the Atlantic mouth. I followed this until the river passed between two high hills, which may be seen in the crude map I have drawn for the benefit of others, should I lose my life in this desperate adventure. A stream of which I do not know the name enters the San Maladrino just beyond the hills mentioned and leads to the southward. It passes through the first forest and is broad and deep. Hiding in the forest the first day, I cautiously paddled my canoe up this stream the next night and passed a portion of the plain until I reached a smaller tributary entering from the left. This tributary flows through the most fertile and most thickly inhabited portion of the Indian lands. At the first junction, I turned to the right and paddled along until I could go no further by boat. So, secreting my canoe in some bushes, I walked during the following night to the valley which we had before visited, and which lies upland near the point of the great mountain forest. This tangled woodland favored me, for in it I securely hid by day, while at night I searched for diamonds in my valley. I found many stones, some of extraordinary size and beauty, but was retarded in my discoveries by the dimness of the light. The forest shaded the valley part of the time, and only for a brief two hours each night was the light of the moon directly upon the slight depression where I labored. And now I have been here three weeks hidden in the heart of the San Blaise district, and no one has observed me yet. I have secured almost three quarts of superb diamonds, a fortune so enormous that I am considering a speedy return to civilization. Meanwhile, I have employed some of my leisure moments in writing this history in my book. Chapter 7 The Folly of the Wise no one had interrupted Duncan Moyt as he read clearly and slowly the above interesting story. But as he paused at the close of the last paragraph I have recorded, we gave some sighs of wonder and admiration and looked at one another curiously to see what impression the history was making. "'Go on!' cried Uncle Naboth eagerly. "'I can't be all!' "'No,' answered the inventor. "'It is not all.' but it seems to cover the period of the first writing. The other entries are more hurried and more carelessly inscribed. Is the map he mentions there? I asked. Yes, it is badly drawn for an engineer, but sufficiently clear, I imagine, to enable one to follow it with ease. Well, then read on, please. He obeyed at once. Last night, as I approached the forest after my work in the valley, I saw a man's face peering at me from between the trees. The moon shone on it clearly. It was an Indian's face. But in an instant it had disappeared. Greatly startled, I searched the forest with care, but could find no trace of the spy. I may have been deceived, however. Perhaps my nerves are getting unstrung. Moit turned a leaf. Again I have seen a man's face, he read. This time it was in the centre of the valley, among a clump of low bushes. I ran to the forest in a state of excitement, then reproached myself for my folly and came back, but I could find nothing. These are all different entries, remarked the reader, turning another page. I will read them as they appear. I am confident, 
proceeded the rider, that I have been discovered at last by the Sambles. They have spies all around me, by day as well as night. But to my surprise, they have not yet molested me in any way. I have determined to get away at once, this very night. But as I may be seized and perhaps murdered, I shall not take more than a part of my treasure with me. This valley of diamonds is far richer than any field ever discovered in South Africa. And if I am ever able to escape, I shall secure assistance and come back here in spite of the Sambles. So I will leave the greater part of my treasure where it has been hidden, and take only such stones as I can comfortably carry in my pockets. I must write a description of where the diamonds are secreted, for if I am killed and any white man comes upon this book, I bequeath to him my wealth, provided he is brave enough to take it from the country of the Sambles. Here is my injunction. When you have reached the valley I have marked upon the map, you will find near its center a boulder of deep red granite, bare and solitary, the upper portion bearing an arm-like projection or spike that points directly towards the forest. Follow this line of direction and you will come upon a gigantic mahogany tree standing just at the edge of the forest, which is really a jungle at this point. Back of the mahogany is a large dead stump surrounded by moss. Lift the moss at the right of the stump and you will come upon a cavity in which I have secreted my hoard of diamonds. You will have no trouble in recognizing the valley on account of the remarkable boulder of rock, and the rest is easy. I have reached the stream and found my canoe safe, but I must keep hidden among the bushes until another night. I do not think I have been followed, but I cannot be sure. The strange inaction of the sun blaze astonishes me and makes me uneasy. The worst has happened, and it is not so very bad. They seized me last evening and took away my diamonds, which they cast into the river with absolute disdain of their value. But then at once they released me and went away and left me to myself. Fortunately, I had hidden ten fine stones in a roll of bark, and these they failed to discover. I'm sorry to have lost the others, but these few specimens will prove the truth of my story when I get home. The adventure shows my wisdom in leaving the bulk of the treasure secreted in the forest. There is no use in hiding myself now, for my presence is well known. Why I should have been spared when every other white intruder has been killed, I cannot explain. But they seem to have made an exception in my favor, and I am jubilant and fearful at the same time. Somehow I cannot help imagining that these dreadful Indians are playing with me, as a cat does with a mouse. But I shall go boldly forward and trust to luck to escape. Is that it? I asked as Duncan Moy paused and closed the book. That is all. But the rest of the poor fellow's story is as clear as if he had written it, I commented musingly. The Indians waited until he had reached the last boundary of their territory, then they put an arrow through his heart. Where he fell, they left him, trusting the canoe would float down the stream and warn other whites not to venture too far. Do you think that that story is true? inquired Uncle Naboth with some asperity. Why not, Uncle? It sounds fishy to my notion. 
I drew the roll of bark we had taken from the pocket of the dead man and cut with my knife the thongs that bound it together. After removing the outer wrappings, I found ten crystal pebbles in the center, which I handed around so that all could examine them with care. Only other Naboth had seen rough diamonds before, but the grunts of the shrewd older trader told me at once he recognized the value of these stones. However, I looked up the acid test in one of the books of my stateroom and was able to apply it in a satisfactory manner. We managed to crumble a portion of one stone, and with the dust thus secured, Duncan polished a small surface with another. They were diamonds, sure enough, very white in color and seemingly perfect specimens. And all the while we were thus occupied, the four of us were silently thinking. Each one, moreover, took the book and read with care the story for himself. The map was crude enough, but I stared at it so intently that every pencil mark was indelibly impressed upon my brain. At dinner, we were an unsociable party. Afterwards, we assembled to the deck. Uncle Naboth smoked his pipe instead of the big fat cigar, but said nothing. Ned put his face between his hands, and resting his elbows upon his knees, stared fixedly at the deck in meditative silence. Duncan Moyt hung over the rail and gazed at the river as it murmured by. I looked at my comrades and smiled at their absorption. This longing for treasure and sudden wealth is natural enough, and few men are able to escape it. I knew very well that all of us were pondering on a way to get at the diamonds Maurice Klepish had left secreted in the forest of Sambles. I may as well acknowledge that I was fully as covetous as the others, but a hearty fear of those strange Indians did much to lessen my desire to visit them. The evening passed with scarcely a remark, and when we went to bed we were still thinking, not of the wrecked ship, though, or how we should save the cargo and get ourselves to some civilized port. The reading of the dead man's narrative had turned our thoughts entirely from our own mischance and inoculated us with a feverish desire to plunge into the same adventurous channels that had resulted so fatally in his own case. At breakfast, Uncle Naboth suddenly abandoned all pretense of reserve. This is the San Maladrido River, he asserted. We all nodded, our faces serious and attentive. Of course, I said. He returned the same way that he entered the San Blaise country, and we found him floating on this very stream. No one cared to discuss a proposition so very evident and having hurriedly finished the meal, we assembled on deck to resume the conversation. Gentlemen, said Moyt, you have all arrived at the same conclusion, I am sure. Let us exchange ideas and discuss their various merits. I asked Ned Britton to speak first. Well, wouldn't be right or proper for us to leave them two or three quarts of diamonds to rust under that stump. I notice the book says these engines don't have firearms, but we got plenty, so I propose, as we march in, pepper em good if they show fight, and then march out again with the diamonds. I believe if we put up a good enough front, there's enough of us to do the job. Especially as a company of carefully drilled soldiers got wiped off the earth, I remarked somewhat sarcastically. Colombian soldiers don't count, said Ned. 
Our men is the right stuff, because they're all Americans. I confess I do not like the looks of this arrow, said Moyt, handling cautiously the bronze-tipped weapon we had drawn from the dead man's breast. It is evident they can shoot quite straight, and there may be thousands of them in San Blaise to fight, for all we know. I think that open warfare would result in our total extinction. If by that you mean we be punched full of holes, I quite agree with you, observed Uncle Naboth. Diplomacy's the thing. Diplomacy and caution. You can catch more flies with sugar than you can with vinegar. Do you have a suggestion, Uncle? I asked. During several voyages in the company of Naboth Perkins, I had learned to have great respect for his shrewdness and judgment, and for that reason I now awaited his reply with genuine interest. He relit his pipe, gave two or three energetic puffs, and then began. This fellow, you'll notice, tells us a good deal about the San Blaise Indians, and what he says is all worth careful considering. They ain't like the common savages, but they have their laws and live up to them. In one place, he says, blacks is used by them for slaves, and that white slaves of Indians that is friendly to them and not to the whites is let alone whenever they're in their country. Gentlemen and Sam, too, that's my keynote. It tells us plain what to do and how to do it. He looked at us triumphantly, but I was too stupid to see the point of his argument. I don't think I understand, Uncle, I said. Well, you're wrong, Sam. It's a thing you can't help now, but you're likely to outgrow it. Hey there, ducks, he called. Get Bry, and both of you come here. I started, beginning to see what he meant, but I said nothing until the two Maoris stood before us. Ionia was tall and slender and very powerful. Nux was shorter and stouter, but equally strong of muscle. Their faces were intelligent and expressive, and their poise exhibited a native dignity. Two more faithful followers no man had ever had than this pair of South Sea Islanders, and I regarded them more as brothers than servants, for I owed my life to their bravery and care. Gentlemen, announced Uncle Naboth, these boys is South Sea Islanders, and mighty good. They're going to take us four white folks into the San Blaise country as their slaves. They'll be finely welcomed, for they'll pound and kick us all around, and we'll be meek as Moses till we get our fists on them diamonds. It's just as easy as rolling off a log, and a heap more fun. I admit the suggestion filled me with admiration, and I saw Duncan Moy's face brighten as soon as he heard it. That's it, sir. That is just the idea I was looking for, to connect with my own. By putting the two together, I believe we shall succeed without a doubt. What's your idea, then, I asked. To travel in my convertible automobile. What? Through the wilderness? Along the streams, as far as the water will allow, and then over leveled plains. The machine will run in any farming country, for you must remember it does not sink into soft ground as ordinary heavy automobiles do. Indeed, by turning the pumps into vacuum chambers and exhausting them, I can render the car so light it will almost skim over a marsh. But what's the use of traveling that way? asked Uncle Naboth. We gain safety in case of attack, speed if we are forced to fly, 
comfort by carrying our hotel always with us. And above all, I rely upon the invention to awe the simple Indians and make them look upon us as superior creatures. The machine is here and in working order. It would be folly when it offers so many advantages not to use it. That's great, I said approvingly, for I can see the force of his arguments. The only thing that worries me, continued Moyd, is the fact that our being white would arouse the enmity of the Sambles, in spite of the wonders we can show them. But if these Maoris, Nax, and Bryonia pose as masters, and we are merely their slaves to run and care for their magic traveling machine, then we would need to have no special fear. Magic traveling machine is good, cried my uncle. You hit the nail on the head, Mr. Boyd. Assure his fate. The inventor smiled as if pleased with the compliment. If I can get a share of those diamonds, I will be independent of my rich uncle in Los Angeles and will have the means to secure my patents and erect my own factory and manufacture the machine myself. It is something to work for, is it not? I had been carefully examining the proposition and now said, There seems to be a serious flaw in your arrangement, Uncle Dayboth. What's that, Sam? It isn't reasonable that a bunch of white men should be slaves to two black ones. Such a combination would excite the suspicions of Indians at once. If they're really as clever as they're reported to be. Take your own case, for example, Uncle Naboth. You couldn't look like a slave for a single minute. Indeed, Mr. Perkins' stout little body, his cheery face and shrewd eyes, and the general air of prosperity and contentment that radiated from his benign personality were a clear refutation of any suggestion of slavery or even dependence. Ned smiled at the idea, and Duncan Moyt shook his head with a sigh. Mr. Perkins cannot go, he said. Uncle Naboth looked disappointed and then puffed his pipe angrily. You fellas don't allow for me acting. I'm as good a play actor as ever traveled in any show, he growled. That may be, Uncle, but you don't look the part, and unfortunately, you can't disguise yourself. But I want it clearly understood that whoever goes on this adventure, we are all to have an equal share in the spoils, for the opportunity belongs to all of us alike, and all would be glad to go and do their full share. I am willing to agree to that, said Moyt. Then I propose that you and I alone accompany Bry and Nux on this expedition, I continued. Two of us are as good as a dozen, for we cannot fight our way in any event. But what about me? asked Britton anxiously. Well, I want you to take the crew in the longboat and try to make Cologne by feeling your way north along the coast. And from there, you could report by wire our mishap to Mr. Harlan and get his instructions on what to do. Uncle Naboth must in the meantime take charge of the wrecked ship and the remaining men. This country isn't very big, you know, so we all ought to be able to meet again in a few days when we can decide upon our future movements. And so the matter was finally arranged. It was decided that Ned and his crew in the longboat and our party in our magic traveling machine would leave the wreck the next morning and proceed in opposite directions upon our respective missions.